0: Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World.
1: China is about to start It's crucial 20th Party Congress, which begins on October the 16th. It comes at a time when global views on China have turned precipitously more negative. That's according to Pew Research Center's recent study of advanced economies. This month, we're peering into the black box of China's Communist Party, with two scholars of China who've used very different research methods to look at Xi Jinping's China.
0: This month, we're delighted to be joined by the authors of two of the hottest new books about China. Firstly, welcome to Alex Joski, Senior Analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He's just written a book called Spies and Lies, How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. And we're so pleased to be joined by Susan Shirk, Research Professor and Chair at the 21st Century China Centre at the University of California, San Diego. Her much-awaited new book is Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Susan, let's start with you. You argue that this overreach started not under Xi Jinping, but a decade earlier under Hu Jintao, when a party oligarchy started to gain power. Can you talk us through some of the factors behind the current overreach?
2: Well, the current overreach under Xi Jinping is driven by a very different dynamic than the overreach that we saw in the who-when era, but everybody's really focused on what's happening today and what could happen in the future if Xi Jinping is leader for life. So let's talk about uh, that dynamic. So what we see is that in the Xi Jinping regime, this personalistic dictatorial regime, uh, there is a dynamic which generates policy decisions and actions which are actually harming China. They're harming China's economy. Uh, The economy is slowing down, and not just for secular demographic reasons, but because of Xi Jinping's own economic policies especially the crackdown on the private sector, and of course, the extreme zero COVID management. Then uh, internationally, there's a growing international backlash against the China threat. Well, why does China look more threatening? It's really uh, because Xi Jinping's foreign policies. And again, I want to emphasize this this does start before Xi Jinping, but we're just talking now about how it operates under Xi. In the first year or so of the Biden administration, for example, when there would have been an opportunity for China to stabilize relations with the United States. But in that first year, we see China picking fights with India over the border, a lot more military pressure on Japan and Taiwan. And of course, uh, against Australia, one of America's closest allies, really giving Australia a very hard time cutting off imports from Australia because of the asking Australian government calling for an international investigation of the origins of COVID. So there's a lot of examples of overreaching. Xinjiang in in internment camps, the national security law uh, suddenly being hoisted on Hong Kong uh, by Beijing, much to the surprise of many Hong Kong officials all of these fall into the category of overreach in that they have created more problems for China. So the dynamic of why it happens, which is the way it's not so much what is inside Xi Jinping's head, what are his ambitions, his biography or his personality. It's Uh, What I argue is it's really how this personalistic dictatorial system operates inside the black box. So uh, what we see is that from Xi Jinping carried out a massive anti-corruption campaign, um, which was aimed in large part against potential rivals Uh, to shore up his own position. And in fact, I call it a purge more than an anti-corruption campaign. And it continues right up to the present day. So it's become kind of a permanent purge. So a lot of senior officials ended up in jail. And the ones who are not in jail, who are still uh, living and in politics, they are very fearful that it could happen to them because power is so concentrated under Xi Jinping and Xi himself makes a fetish of loyalty. Uh, These subordinate officials competing with one another for promotion, uh, they feel they have to get out in front and show how avidly they are carrying out Xi Jinping's policies. So you get this bandwagon effect on Xi Jinping, uh, kind of over-compliance with Xi's policies. So the implementation may turn out to be even more extreme than what Xi Jinping himself originally envisioned. Finally, the feedback loops don't work under this type of system. Nobody dares to give the truth to Xi Jinping, accurate information about what are the costs of his policy. So he lives in a kind of echo chamber of uh, head nodding and praise. And he may not even know what are the downsides of the policies he's been carrying out. So the the dynamics of this political system under Xi Jinping's personalistic leadership inevitably produce this kind of overreach.
0: Um Susan, there's there's one line in your book that really, really jumped out at us, and it's it's a finding that Alex may echo. You wrote um, quote, many of those I interviewed have viewed the Communist Party's propaganda department as the most powerful agency in China's political firmament and blame it for hijacking the policy process. Now, this seems to go against a lot of conventional wisdom which sees Chinese propaganda as not that effective. I mean, why do you think they see it as powerful?
2: Well, what these people inside the system are saying is that the propaganda department or other agencies sometimes go off on their own with... A kind of framework of what's going on or what the policy is. And the people actually in charge of the policy feel that they have been sidelined and that they've lost control over the communication of the policy. This happens in foreign policy. And a lot of those complaints come from the foreign ministry or other parts of the diplomatic bureaucracy. Because, you know, despite what we see today with wolf warrior diplomacy, this very bellicose rhetoric, threatening rhetoric, that many Chinese uh, diplomats, foreign ministry people uh, articulate. And, of course, it's quite telling that they do that because they believe that's what Xi Jinping wants them to do. This is a form of bandwagoning. Up until recently, Chinese diplomats didn't talk that way, and Chinese diplomats, the main goal was to improve China's relations with other countries, not to browbeat other foreign governments. And they sometimes would really object to the way the propaganda authorities would talk about Their relations with those countries. They felt they kind of had lost control of of the policy. And you see this especially in relationship to the United States or Japan, countries that are kind of the focal point of Chinese nationalism.
1: I mean, Alex, in your book, you're really focusing on how China's Communist Party has operated in overseas influence operations, and in particular the Ministry of State Security or MSS, how important do you think propaganda has been in these um, influence operations that you outline in, in you know, really complex detail in, in your book? Would you agree with that assessment that uh, the propaganda department is, you know, actually a really powerful one?
3: I think the propaganda department, you know, is a really important part of the Chinese Communist Party system. You know, the the term propaganda is is loaded in English in ways that it isn't quite in Chinese. You know, in China, the propaganda system isn't just about putting out misleading information. It's about information, ideology, ideas, education, and so on. So it just covers a lot more than the the term connotes to a lot of people. But I think the really special thing is uh, in the early 2000s, the emergence of this concept of peaceful rise you know, the emergence of Zheng Bijian as a speaker on on foreign policy issues. And he was coming out essentially of the propaganda system. You know, he'd worked there uh, since I think the 1960s or even 1950s. Uh, one of his last jobs inside the Communist Party was as the senior deputy head of the propaganda department. Uh, so he is someone who is really at the core uh, in many ways of China's propaganda system and comes out with a key uh, sort of slogan or a key formulation for Chinese foreign policy, which is this idea of China's peaceful rise. And what I've done in my book is I've tried to really show how the MSS, this Chinese intelligence agency, permeates a lot of other external work. Um, But because it's covert inherently, because a lot of its activities are clandestine, it's been overlooked in a lot of histories. It's been overlooked in a lot of analysis of the Chinese Communist Party's power. So a lot of things that I looked at in the past as united front work, you know, efforts to influence and co-op people outside the party within China and overseas, or propaganda work. When I started digging into these activities, you know, trying to piece together identities, front organizations, uh, covert operations, I was finding that a lot of this activity designed to manipulate, to influence the West was actually being led behind the scenes by agents of the MSS. And that's the case with Peaceful Rise in Zheng Bijian, where the very think tank uh, that he used to propose this theory called China Reform Forum had actually been set up a couple of years earlier uh, by undercover officers of the MSS. And as Zheng Bijian traveled overseas to promote this idea of China's peaceful rise, he was invariably accompanied by undercover MSS officers, you know, fluent in English, fluent in the foreign policy of the United States, but experts in particular not in stealing technology, not in penetrating foreign governments, but in what I call influence operations.
0: One major success, um, you argue, is this elite capture uh, of making powerful allies who help spread China's narrative overseas to rehabilitate its image. I mean, it's a very complex story with networks of front organisations, think tanks and research bodies you've just talked about set up by the MSS to do all this influence work. But one example you cite that really jumped out at me was the former Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke, um, who you dub as one of the uh, access cults, someone who's built his career on connection to uh, party insiders and pops up in all kinds of places. I mean, I came across him in Papua New Guinea lobbying for Chinese mining companies. Um, but however, to, you, to be clear, you argue he was unwittingly helping China. I mean, how much evidence of there is of these links in the Bob Hawke case? Yes,
3: yeah, so Bob Hawke is a really interesting case, uh you know, to a lot of Australians, and certainly to me, one of the things that stood out about him and his relationship with China was just how strong his relationship with reformists was in the 1980s. You know, he was Prime Minister in this period where you had Hu Yabang and Zhao Ziyang in real positions of power and actually pushing for some sort of liberalisation and economic reform. Uh, But that all came to an end, in part with the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989. And Bob Hawke famously shed tears uh, while delivering an address commemorating the massacre. Uh, but then what I saw was that after he left the prime ministership and went into business, he made his first ever trip back to China at the invitation of an organization that was, if not run by heavily uh, involved undercover intelligence officers. And you know there's a striking photo that really sort of sealed the story for me, which was uh, Bob Hawke shaking hands with the head of this organization, who himself was a member of China Reform Forum, that same MSS group that specialised in influence work. And then just behind Bob Hawk and this this guy, you had the undercover vice minister of state security, who specialised, it seems, in elite influence operations, and the head of a front group of the MSS that was associated with the same parts of this intelligence system. And what he was doing in that photo was he was actually signing up to a joint business venture with these Chinese individuals, with these princelings to essentially uh, commercialize the access they had to Chinese elites, to foreign companies. So Bob Hawke, you know, his his really first big business venture in China, which really was the source of his future wealth, was through a front organization for Chinese intelligence officers. And from there, he went to become, you know, one of the founders of the Boao Forum for Asia to Australians. I think it was just this remarkable story of the man who had incredibly good feelings and, and goodwill towards the Chinese people who'd cried at, at you know at the Tiananmen massacre, uh, had returned to China and believed that you know now we should go back to doing business with them. Now we should normalise relations, and uh, it seemed that at a granular level, this was actually orchestrated by undercover Chinese intelligence officers.
1: Susan, I can see that you're <laughs> you just made a,
2: a face. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, really, I. Very bad at trying to maintain a poker face. <laughs> no, but, I mean, would you like to
1: respond? I, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the questions is if it's someone like Bob Hawke, they really can't know what organizations within China their interlocutors are part of, especially if they're covert organizations. How can you get any access to a state like China? I mean, you know, there's, in, in many ways, I guess it's the question of the black box, isn't it? How do you then study China when all these systems are so unknown to us?
2: Well, I must say, um, as I was listening to Alexander speak about uh, his book and Peaceful Rise, which is in the title of my book, I was thinking to myself how glad I am that I never tried to do business in China, that I'm a poor academic who never even invested in any company doing business in China, because I can imagine that people who do, I mean, someone like Hawk, he he was very sincere in his viewpoints. And the fact that he was promoting business was completely consistent with his belief that Greater interdependence and integration would be good for people in both countries, I'm sure. So I guess the key question is whether or not the fact that the people he was dealing with, doing business with in China, were covertly involved in the Ministry of State Security Operations, does that completely... Uh, corrupt, discredit, or undercut the validity of what he was trying to do. Does that make him somehow uh, guilty of being complicit in this type of influence operation? What do you think, Alexander?
3: I think what I'd say is that you know one of the the really special and part of why it's so hard to respond to these sorts of activities as as a government is that quite often they don't involve breaking the law. You know, I don't think anything Bob Hawke did, based on my research, was illegal. He certainly wasn't a spy for China. Uh, but nonetheless, I think you know, China made a real win for itself in promoting its international image, in changing how Australians viewed China in the aftermath of the Tiananmen massacre through this work that they did on Bob Hawke. And you know I think looking back in hindsight you know we can we can have arguments about whether it was the right thing for Hawke to do or not you know he certainly didn't harm anyone by entering business in China but I think it's a really interesting example of the emphasis the Ministry of State security places on elite influence operations which isn't something that's really been captured or is widely known in my opinion and also the fact that these activities really go right back to, the 1980s or in Hawke's case, you know, 1993, this is something that the party has invested in for a long time. And I think with some degree of boldness, that's quite remarkable, you know, actually having an undercover MSS officer, not just anybody, but a vice minister of state security directly engaging with Bob Hawke in the 1980s. This is the same vice minister who directly engaged with George Soros as they were infiltrating his foundation inside China. Um, so you had these extremely bold and sort of quite confident intelligence officers who are happy to deal directly with foreigners and and mediate in some ways their access to China. And I think that's one of the, the tricky parts of it. You know, there are so many parts of the Chinese Communist Party. There are so many different people and, and ideas within it. Um, so I think that part of the problem of the MSS getting involved in these sorts of activities was how it was able to shape the understanding of China That people like Bob Hawke had by giving them selective access, by giving them opportunities and by giving better access or platforms or encouragement to people who had views that they wanted to promote internationally.
1: I want to come back to this issue of the peaceful rise, because that's the central tenet of your book, Alex, that this whole concept of China's peaceful rise was basically a concoction uh, by the Ministry of State Security. What evidence is there for that? I mean, you could argue that these influence operations are just, you know, it's another type of amplification of government policy. You know, how can we judge how sincere this policy was?
3: Yeah, I think I think there are a number of ways to tackle tackle that. So one is simply um, looking at the actual formulation of peaceful rise. And in my opinion, it wasn't really a policy statement. I think Robert Sudinger in his, his analysis of it did a really good uh, explanation of this that it's 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 essentially a sort of a propaganda formula. You know, Zhong Bicen, this guy who 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 came up with the concept, was not from the foreign policy system. You know, he was from the propaganda system. His expertise was in analyzing Chinese history. You know, writing the historical resolution under Deng Xiaoping in 1981. Uh, and and if you read the way he actually presented his theory of peaceful rise, it was really a way of analysing China's past. And I think there was a sense, looking at the future in the way he was writing about it, that's contingent, that it was contingent on accommodating policies from the United States, that it was designed to encourage the United States to bring China into the world stage as a responsible stakeholder. But to me, I really thought that the sincerity of that was undermined by just how deeply involved MSS officers were in promoting peaceful rise and the way that they worked around it. So they weren't just sort of hanging around with Zheng Bijian and um, kind of accompanying him for defensive purposes. They were going to foreign embassies undercover, uh, and you can see this in WikiLeaks cables, undercover MSS officers. And these are sort of, you know, in some ways the the hardcore of the party, this vanguard within the vanguard, you know, some of the most dedicated believers in communism within the Chinese Communist Party uh, going into the U.S. embassy undercover as scholars and talking about how they believed democracy was inevitable in China, uh, that they believed the the purge of Zhao Ziyang in 1989 was, you know, a very sad thing and they felt bad for him and they thought this would be reversed in due course, uh, and going into the Australian embassy and saying very similar things. And then at the same time as they were talking about the need to engage with openness with foreign countries, they were trying to blackmail foreign scholars. I interviewed one person who was the subject of an attempted honeypot by the very same officers who would accompany Zhang Bijian overseas, you know, give these talks about peaceful rise uh, and talk about the need for openness and transparency and engagement. But I think the bottom line is you don't task intelligence officers to tell the truth to, to foreign countries in some ways, especially not these officers who's, who came from a part of the MSS, the 12th Bureau that specialised in elite influence operations Uh, you know, these are the same officers of the MSS, in fact, the very same officers who handled Katrina Leung, a double agent, you know, working for the FBI and the MSS at the same time. Um, So I think that the very role of the MSS in these activities just undermines the sincerity of Peaceful Rise as a concept.
2: Well, if I may jump in, you know, certainly my experience going way back to the eighties and nineties in the foreign ministry and including people like Chen Chi Chun, very senior diplomats uh, close to probably the most influential diplomat of the post-Mao era. The goal of trying to gain status and respect and influence for China in a manner that reassured other countries about its intent, that even as it grew more powerful, its intentions were not malign. It was definitely an important part of the policy. You know, it wasn't just an afterthought coming after a more provocative, aggressive policy. It was really woven into the policy, uh, especially the regional diplomacy with China's neighbors. You know, people like Wang Yi, Fu Ying, these were the people who were kind of the architects of this very successful, uh, what I call a policy of reassurance and restraint up until about 2007-8 so the policy was being carried out it was being acted upon it wasn't just a slogan or something that operatives intelligence operatives tried to pitch
3: to foreigners I think I actually actually agree with that and it's it's sort of an interesting contrast in some ways in in how we view things so I guess the the, the difference then that in the way that I look at it is, is that I do think that they did want to convince the West that they were following this policy of, of peaceful rise. But the difference in how I view it is that I thought my, my opinion is that at the same time they were preparing for a later stage where they would abandon this policy. So I don't see the, the shift away from peaceful rise as a refutation of, of past strategy. I see it as an evolution. and this is something that I think Rushdoshi, in his book, The Long Game, has, has done a much better job of me than analysing and, and arguing for tracing that broader evolution uh, in Chinese foreign policy and showing that, you know, a lot of this was really a reaction to events in 89 and 91, you know, the Tiananmen Massacre, the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on and the, and the Gulf War, uh, that these seem to really crystallise uh, a sort of fear of um, pressure from the United States And a need to prepare for that, to blunt it, and then to build up China's own power in the meantime. Um, And I saw the same in 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 the way the MSS was thinking. You know, there's a remarkable um, 1993 speech that I found Jiang Zemin gave to the MSS, where he was talking about you know foreign policy, talking about the United States, talking about economic policy in ways that to me just sounded exactly like Xi Jinping today. You know, warning of color revolution, saying that you know foreign countries like the United States have have never given up their intention of trying to undermine our system and turn us into a democracy and 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 split our country, you know, divide Taiwan from China. So I really think it was only natural in this sort of setting uh, where the MSS was believing that you know foreign forces had been behind the Tiananmen massacre, that the United States was trying to undermine China, that they would pursue such a policy of convincing the United States that China wasn't a threat, and 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 waiting until what I see is now this period where China feels it has the confidence and, and the the development, the military power, uh, the diplomatic ties to actually pursue a more aggressive policy. So one piece
0: that I, I kept thinking of while reading both of your books um, was this piece written in Foreign Affairs by Tsai Xia, who used to be the Central Propaganda School and was a real party insider who tracked her own disillusionment as, if you like, the black box shifted as she saw that you know, the things she was promoting as policy were not taken seriously by by the people that mattered. I mean, um, maybe to you first, Susan, where are sort of loyal party people in all of this, people who believed in reform, um, where does the shift in the black box leave them?
2: Well, they're extremely frustrated uh, and there's no political figure today to rally around. There's no focal point of this underground unhappiness resistance to Xi Jinping right now. So it looks to me like they are basically rallying around the legacy of Deng Xiaoping. That's where their loyalty lies. They believe that Deng was sincere. I mean, he wasn't perfect, right? That he had its limitations, many of which uh, we're living with today under Xi Jinping. But he saw clearly how the overconcentration of authority under Mao led to arbitrary decisions, which were had tragic consequences for China, like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. So his Introduction of term limits, retirement age, regular, predictable, peaceful, turnover of power at the top, all of these things were aimed at preventing another Mao from emerging. And yet today, we see a figure like another Mao. So one of the puzzles that my book addresses is why was it so easy? For Xi Jinping to restore a centralized personalistic regime. And, you know, uh, I basically say that Deng Xiaoping didn't take demalization far enough and uh, that he was never willing to allow institutions outside the party to really develop autonomous authority like the. National People's Congress, the legislature or the court system. And so leaving all the checks and balances inside the party was really inadequate.
0: Alex, do you have any thoughts on the saisha question? I mean, you used a very different set of um, methods to, to do your research, um, but I know you have quite an extensive network um, within China.
3: One friend explained to me I'm I'm so confident in China's rise now, you know, I feel like we're now in a position to challenge the West. You know, we we really like a lot of the things Xi Jinping is doing. You know, I think people, at least in the general population, a lot of people really are huge supporters of the anti-corruption crackdown, and that was one of the earliest things that that Xi Jinping did, and that's that's something that is 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 quite, you know, defining uh, about Xi Jinping to a lot of Chinese people. You know, certainly people in the foreign policy establishment in China have a lot of different views on these things. But I think Xi Jinping has been incredibly good at winning popular support. And going back to this question of propaganda, he's been especially good, I think, at controlling the propaganda system and keeping a dictatorship over propaganda in a way that past leaders really haven't. You know, totally restricting freedom of the press and not just freedom of the press, but keeping it out of the control of others inside the party and in that way, really turning it into a fantastic vehicle for self-promotion and thereby strengthening his ability to, to move away from this model of having any other voices within the party.
1: I mean, when I read your book, Alex, I was just so struck by the fact that so many familiar names, people who I would have gone to or I've spoken to many times as a journalist, and you have traced their links with the Ministry of State Security or organizations that you have identified as fronts for MSS activity. And you know some of them like the China Reform Forum are seen as authoritative. I mean, how would you then interpret um, that? I mean, if we are going to these people for interviews and quoting them, are we all playing a part in disseminating Chinese disinformation, or should we just discount those links? Because otherwise, how can we possibly understand China? Yeah,
3: it's it's a it's a terrible problem, right? I think I think it's really important to keep talking to these people, but at the same time, I think it's just important, just as important to be mindful of their position within the party to the extent that we're able to. But the sad thing is that. You know, when we're talking about people who might be assets of an intelligence agency, you're probably not going to be able to know that, but, you know, I think one of the ways that it it really matters is this question of whether it's actually affected how they engage with foreigners and what they've said to foreigners, and I don't think it means that, you know, every Chinese foreign policy scholar is lying to their foreign friends, but I don't think we can pretend that it's irrelevant. I think, you know, one of the theories I have is that, seeing so many of these chinese reformists, you know, genuine chinese reformists like fan gang or foreign policy thinkers in china who are quite moderate or uh, sympathetic to the west like wang zisu seeing incredibly close ties between them and the mss going back decades and again this particular part of the mss that specializes in influence operations uh, it seems that you know the freedom that these scholars have had to express more you know, liberal or reformist ideas is probably owed in part to the relationships that they have built with intelligence agencies. And I think that begs the question of, you know, whether they've done something in return. And that might not be signing up to some giant conspiracy, but it might be as simple as, you know, they're reporting back on all their dealings with foreigners. They're recommending people to intelligence officers as recruits. I could see people like Wang Su accompanying undercover MSS officers on trips abroad where those MSS officers were using those activities as uh, opportunities to rendezvous and recruit clandestine assets. But I think it does pose a challenge to our ability to engage in field work in China. Um, and certainly it's something that I could see through WikiLeaks cables was being used successfully against the US Embassy you know, around the time of the Olympics where a lot of the sources the US Embassy was uh, talking to uh, I think I identified at least a dozen of them who were actually undercover MSS officers, often using China Reform Forum as cover and quite consistently pushing ideas that were liberal, that were reformist, and that contradicted what an actual MSS officer would be saying. So clearly they were talking to diplomats, giving them cable bait, I call it, to uh, you know help them gain readership back in China, but also to push ideas uh, that were not sincere you know, ideas that were designed to reassure the West about China's intentions when those clearly weren't the views that those MSS officers actually held.
0: Susan, I mean, you have an incredibly thick Rolodex, and and like myself and Louisa, you rely on, you know, insiders. I mean, how do you guard against the fact that um, you might be being used in this way, or is there no other way to get information out of China? Like, is this just something you have to factor in?
2: Being used in this way, I mean, I'm not naive about the Chinese government's efforts to persuade people outside China that they're not a threat, that their intentions are friendly. And I'm also sympathetic to the experts and scholars in China. They're expected to cooperate. With the party and the government. It's it's almost impossible for them to be truly independent and avoid reporting. Or when they go to the United States and they they're interviewing us, and then they go back and they give their analysis of American perspectives. What are the debates? What are the uh, different points of view among different groups. And frankly, it's a useful exercise. It's useful to have that kind of intelligence, if you will, passed on to Chinese decision makers. So to me, it's it doesn't really change anything about what the process is like. And it doesn't mean that anybody who consults Shares information with the MSS or the party organizations is not, you know, a, a fairly independent, can be very reform-minded, as Alexander said, type of individual.
1: I mean, I've just been struck by how different your research methods are. Um, you know, Alex is you're depending almost entirely on open source information using your ability to speak and understand Chinese and find information on the internet, whilst Susan, you're much more dependent upon, you know, I guess what we call human intelligence, speaking to party insiders and of course your own history of study of China. I mean, I I guess I'm thinking forward, how do we study China in future? It seems those methods, the ones that you've used, Susan, are not really going to be available to us, given the tight clamps on who can speak and who can speak to whom now. As you've actually just explained, Alex, there are real difficulties when you're solely, you know, looking at open source information. How do we now navigate that in future?
2: We're hoping that zero COVID eventually ends and more of us will be able to travel to China. And then it will really become how staunchly anti-Western, anti-foreign the authorities remain, and whether or not there's any stabilization of China's relations with Europe, uh, the United States, and other countries. And, you know, if you look at this period of really Cold War type relationship between China and the United States, say, it's actually quite recent, very recent. We're really only talking about a very few years, basically six years. And so the first four years of the Trump administration, where Trump policy, I think it's fair to say, contributed to the uh, the more hostile relationship, um, even though Trump himself, you know, I don't think really cared that much about policy issues other than the trade deficit. But still, at the end of his administration, and I talk about this in my book when talking about the downward spiral of U.S. China relations after the midterm, and then he saw that. His chances of winning re-election were really touch and go. He gave the green light to all parts of his administration to confront China on every continent and every domain. And then the Biden administration, as I said, the Chinese side didn't really take advantage of the opportunity that our peaceful turnover of power uh, permits and. The Biden administration also had their own domestic constraints uh, related to these big uh, legislative initiatives that they wanted to undertake, and they ended up framing them in the context of competing with China. So, the, and of course, we the Democrats had a very tiny margin majority in in Congress. So, you know, there are various contingent reasons why uh, relations got so bad. But I guess the point I wanted to make is I think it's possible that we may repair with good active diplomacy on both sides if other members of the Chinese elite take advantage of the 20th Party Congress to try to create maybe a somewhat more balanced central um, standing committee with some independent politicians there who might debate policy issues with Xi Jinping, or maybe even share the leadership of some of the leading small groups and commissions. In other words, restores a little bit of power sharing at the top and a little bit more diversity and, dare we say, more pragmatism in China's policy process that maybe, and on the U.S. side, we get, you know, some good old-fashioned diplomacy, and, you know, maybe we can restore some stability to U.S.-China relations. So it hasn't been forever that it's been like this, and everything is highly contingent. You know, that's why I don't buy Graham Allison, even though it's a wonderful book, I don't buy Rush Doshi. We've had this consistent Chinese objective of, of supplanting the United States. I think all of these things are driven by largely by domestic politics and economics, and it's very contingent. So ever the optimist, I think that there's a possibility of restoring a certain amount of stability in U.S.-China relations.
0: Um, Alex, do you want to add some thoughts on on research methods or the different research approaches in the future?
3: Yeah, I, I'd say you know it's a it's a huge shame to lose the kinds of access that scholars have had in the past to human contacts and all the information that has come out of that. I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, this brilliant footnote in um, James Venon's PhD thesis on PLA business activities up to 1998, which was when Jiang Zemin ordered the PLA to divest a lot of its business ventures because of corruption and all sorts of things. And he noted in his thesis that uh, the PLA nightclub at the Workers' Stadium in Beijing was still very active despite this. And the footnote said, you know, author observations... May 1998, something like that. So the days of frequenting PLA nightclubs for field are over and, you know, really will uh, be a shame to lose that. But I also see incredible opportunities from open source research and the internet that are slowly getting taken up by scholars. You know, Adrian Zenz is is a really outstanding example of the kinds of incredible insights that you can get from careful, methodical Uh, Source that is kind of creative uh, but rigorous in in gathering information on the Chinese Communist Party and and its activities. And I think this sort of open source research is is really more powerful than ever, despite some of the tightening that's going on in China. Um, the, The nature of the party state bureaucracy, the way that it replicates itself down at lower levels, I think creates all these openings for research and ways for information to get out. And the size of the apparatus also means that the party invests so much effort in talking to itself and recording what it's doing, keeping track of what the party is actually trying to do and what it's achieving. And, and these are all things that, you know, we as scholars using the Internet can really take advantage of to go beyond high level policy statements and, and work out what is actually happening in many areas, and as I've tried to show through my book, this is something that, that even works with intelligence agencies that uh, are set up to hide what they're doing, set up to engage in secret activities, but there's a paper trail there. You know, I looked at a, um, a charity in Shanghai that um, seemed to be connected to the Shanghai State Security Bureau, and looking at the meeting minutes that it had filed with the Shanghai government, I could see that it was meeting in the skyscraper you know one raining road in Shanghai, and then going online, someone, a taxi driver in Shanghai, had had dropped off a passenger at this address, and this taxi driver posted online asking what this building was, and someone just replied, "Oh yeah, that's the the Shanghai State Security Bureau skyscraper," and then you can follow the charity, see where it's getting money from, what activities it's engaged in, and, and these are all freely available online if you're if you're putting in the effort and the time and and the passion to actually try to work out what's happening so i think it's 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 a it's a whole new field in some ways that's opening up you know some doors are closing but others are opening and i think it's very exciting
0: i mean i I always used to find the best dirt about my own county by checking the neighboring county's website because that's (laughs) where all the bad news would be um Now, look, I have to ask the question. We're we're approaching the crucial 20th Party Congress, which opens on the 16th of October, where Xi Jinping should have stepped down uh, if he hadn't awarded himself a third term. So let's let's peer inside the black box. What are your predictions for what might happen and what this might tell us about the party?
3: Yeah, I I don't expect any big surprises in the sense that Xi Jinping will get a third term. I think these rumours of a Li Keqiang resurgence uh, are probably more likely to just be his swan song than an actual revolt you know it's a, it's a very sad outcome uh, one thing that i'm really interested in is tensions within the elite you know there have been these rumors that that Tsai Xiao, for example mentioned that in december last year a top p l a general who had been retired called Liu Yao and his younger brother had been arrested and i think that dynamic of instability at the very top of chinese politics within the community of princelings is is fascinating but also disturbing and concerning because to me you know change in opposition within the party probably isn't going to come from the rank and file but from people at the very top like that and f- for something like that to have happened is certainly destabilizing and i think you know a less stable leadership at the top of china has unclear but nonetheless worrying implications for all sorts of things like you know conflict in taiwan you know suppression of human rights domestically uh, political freedoms and 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 so on. Uh, so I think it's it's not going to be a spectacular party congress with with surprises, but it's it's going to be a kind of a sad and and disappointing one for people who are interested in the future of China.
2: We at 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego, we did a little policy brief on uh, what to expect after the party congress with my colleagues including Victor Schur and Barry Naughton and and Taiming Chung. And um, Victor, especially, of course, is kind of the leading expert on factional politics in the Chinese political elite. And um, what we uh, looked at is the possibilities for the Standing Committee of the uh, Chinese Communist Party of the Politburo and how you could end up with a somewhat more constrained Xi Jinping because of having uh, a few more slots to be filled by politicians with independent factions, factional bases, and also a kind of reputation for pragmatic policymaking uh, versus a standing committee, which is just filled with Xi Jinping acolytes. And so there isn't really any voice for more sensible approaches to these policy issues. And, And it's related to the retirement age issue. Because if Xi Jinping wanted to get rid of, say, Wang Yang, Li Keqiang, for example, so he could fill up those two slots with people who are closer to him, um, he would need to lower the retirement age from what it's been. It's been 68 go, 67 stay. To get rid of those two, individuals. He would have to go to 67, go 66, stay. So um, I think that's will be something interesting to see. What we're talking about is changes at the margin. You know, as Alexander said, pretty much no one anticipates that the Central Committee will say no to the nomination of Xi Jinping as general secretary or potentially chairman of the party. Now, of course, the Central Committee does have the authority to say no. And in the Soviet Union, that happened twice. There is a more competitive election process of top leaders in the Central Committee of the Vietnamese Communist Party. So there's always, some possibility that the Central Committee would say no. But under the circumstances, Xi Jinping has been appointing uh, especially provincial party secretaries and governors who sit in the Central Committee. They're the largest block in the Central Committee. So he's been putting people he's pretty sure will vote for him in the Central Committee. So I think there's almost no chance of the Central Committee revolting against the nominations. And of course, it is interesting that five years ago, Xi Jinping, as he was dismantling the internal reforms within the party designed to introduce some elements of inter-party democracy and helping anticipate the formal vote of the Central Committee, they held this these straw polls, these informal popularity contests back in the uh, 18th and 17th party congresses before them. Well, uh, but in the 19th party congress five years ago, Xi Jinping just eliminated the election and he did it all through interviewing and basically managed the nomination process himself. And he also told provincial levels not to use elections either. So I'm pretty sure there has not been a straw poll uh, before the party Congress. And that we'll find out that the uh, that she relied on interviews uh, to put together the slate for the top leadership of the party.
0: Susan, Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you for thanks having so me. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Susan Shirk and Alex Josky, and to my co-host, Louisa Lin. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.